So here we are, truly in the heart of our retreat this evening. I'm going to spend a little bit of time with you speaking about compassion and forgiveness. 10,000 joys, 10,000 sorrows, compassion and forgiveness in a time of great challenge. So there are two ways to think about compassion or that we understand compassion. And one is as an actual practice, just like the meta practice that we've been working with all week. There are actually, I don't know if you remember from the first day, there are four Brahma-Viharas, compassion being the second, although it's not linear in terms of how we engage with them, but just in terms of the lists, it comes right after metta. The Pali word for compassion is karuna. Also a way to understand or think about compassion is as empathy the wish that others be free from suffering. As distinguishable from loving kindness or metta, which is the wish that others be happy. Compassion is the practice of the cultivation of internal tranquility of awareness, a skillful quality of the mind-heart. in relationship to Vipassana, which is a lot of the practice that you're being given at the 845 sit, which is investigating into phenomena, insight. The Brahma Viharas are the Buddha's primary heart teachings. So, you know, in the Dharma, there's lots of teachings and these four um, qualities, these four cultivations, are Buddha's teachings on the primary heart. Just to give you, you know, the, the English language, is, it's an interesting language and um, it, it's very discreet in terms of how energetically it puts meaning on words. So I'm going to just say a few synonyms to you um, in relationship to compassion so that maybe it can broaden a little bit your holding of the energy of compassion. So I already mentioned empathy. Uh, One of my favorite ways to think about compassion is grace, humanity, kindness, and one of Larry's um, energetically aligned words, tenderness. That may help a little bit in expanding how you hold compassion. The Buddha taught that all humans are alike in their desire for happiness and love. This is so whether or not we are unskillful or skillful in an attempt to find balance, peace, and happiness. The confidence, strength, and personal authority to right ourselves or align ourselves when we encounter suffering and pain 
comes from a cultivated heart and mind which trains us and prepares us to meet the suffering and pain we encounter in relationship to ourselves and with other beings. Christina Feldman, one of the uh, IMS Spirit Rock Gaia House teachers, states this, Love asks you to let go. Compassion asks you to let go. Your capacity to be wholeheartedly present for anyone or anything in this world asks you to release your longing for how things used to be and your yearning for a better future. Letting go frees you to take your seat firmly in this moment and in the truth of loss and change. Letting go frees you of the burden of obsessing about what used to be and what might be in the future. Your willingness to let go of what should be liberates you to embrace what is. This is one of the hardest lessons for us to learn and the lesson that none of us can avoid in this life. Most of us discover through reflection that the places we resist and cling to most tenaciously are also the places we suffer most acutely. They are the places we feel most imprisoned in a world governed by self and disconnected from others. Compassion is a release from that imprisonment and a healer of separation. Letting go does not leave you marooned in indifference or apathy. You are not asked to let go of your love or bonds of commitment and care. You are learning step by step, moment by moment, to let go of suffering and separation. Your capacity to find a boundless compassion is released by your capacity to let go. Compassion is a responsive movement of the heart. The heart quivers in response to suffering. A way to think of it is that compassion lies at the heart of what it means to be fully human. And it is what allows us to be at peace in the midst of pain and turmoil. It is an energetic response, not a mental idea. It is the response we often find for ourselves when given the opportunity to engage with the task of finding the humility and the courage to open oneself to our own and others' difficult and distressing circumstances and conditions. It is not easy. It takes intention, persistence, patience, and practice to move to holding it as a core value and creating it as a being state. Whereas compassion is an empathetic response to suffering, loving kindness is the intention of goodwill. I talked about that yesterday. 
The first step in developing compassion is being able to recognize, to open to, and to acknowledge that pain and suffering exists for everybody, everywhere, at some time or another. Some suffering is intense and terrible, and some is quiet and small, but it is all suffering just the same. Of course, suffering is not all there is in life, though most times or many times it can seem that way. It is a thread that needs to be recognized clearly and grounds us in the awareness that we are all connected and moving along in our lives, living what it means to be human. Denial, resistance, aversion, turning away from this fact and seeing with an obtuse mind only prolongs and aggravates the inevitable struggle that can arise when we do not see clearly things as they are. With the cultivation of the qualities that incline the heart towards compassion, the compassionate heart-mind builds the capacity to withstand the turmoil that is often the result of clinging and grasping or any of the other visitors that can drop in when the mind becomes overwhelmed and clouded. A cultivated heart-mind increases our tolerance and willingness to meet challenges and difficulties and to truly know that this moment is like this, unaffected by the storms created by the greed, aversion, and delusion. And when effected as well, we are able to regain balance and to stabilize our hearts and minds with efficiency, efficacy, and ease. Sharon Salzberg says, when we deny our experience, we are always moving from something real to something fabricated. To live by this web of legend will always harm us. The truth may be difficult to open to, but it will never hurt us. Most often it sets in motion a trajectory to growth, forward movement, and healing, leading us closer and closer to freedom. When we feel broken, at our limit, when we hit bottom, there is an opening there where we get to see the possibility of living life in a different way. Trauma, trouble, difficulties, or struggles are transformative. It demands that we become creative at moving forward and to heal when we can be awake to that. Sometimes, gentle, nudge and other times unmistakable push and heed the opening. Rumi, this is one of my favorite quotes, keep your eye on the bandaged places. That's where the light enters. Even more difficult than acknowledging pain 
is opening to it. It ain't easy, and it takes courage and fortitude to establish an appropriate and rational relationship to pain and suffering. We may have to do it bit by bit, a little at a time, without forcing or being contrived. We also don't want to construct the illusion that we can somehow control the suffering. When we do not feel in control, often what shows up is righteous anger or indignation, fear or grief or pity. The near enemy of compassion is pity. It can seem similar or can appear like compassion. However, there's a quality to pity of feeling superior to or, to or in control of your own life and feeling that the other person's suffering is because they lack control. Larry Yang identifies another near enemy, that of codependency, the need or drive to fix the difficult emotion or to make suffering go away or make it better. He says, be compassionate to where you are. This is the process of the heart, stretching beyond old patterns of defensiveness and reactivity. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty. Cruelty is the enjoyment of other people's suffering, even though it is clearly an opposite state from compassion. When we are lost in aversion, it can become hard to detect. Anger and hatred Outrage, fear, and grief are all similar to compassion, but compassion they are not. They are all varying states of aversion. When we have a bright, clear mind and can bring forward compassion as the trembling of the heart, it arises with the quality of equanimity which is another one of the Brahma-viharas. Imagine a mind where there is no bitter condemning, no judgment of oneself or of others. This mind does not see the world in terms of good and bad, right and wrong, good and evil. It sees only suffering and the end of suffering direct quote from the Buddha, so I am told. What would happen if we looked at ourselves and all of the different things that we see and did not judge <coughs> any of it? None of it. Nada. We would see that some things bring pain and other things bring happiness but there would be no denunciation, no guilt, no shame, and no fear. Sharon Salzberg quotes, how wondrous to see ourselves, others, and the world in this way, 
when we see only suffering and the end of suffering, then we feel compassion. Then we act in energetic and forceful ways, but without the corrosive effects of aversion. There are two ways of understanding the unfolding of compassion. One is to see compassion as the outcome of a path that can be cultivated and developed. Through investigation, you can learn to attend to those moments when you close and contract in the face of suffering, anger, fear, or alienation, and then ask yourself the question, what difference empathy, forgiveness, patience, and tolerance might make in this instance? The second way of understanding compassion is to see it as the natural embodiment of wisdom. Deep insight can reveal the emptiness of the notion of self and other. Another quote from Christina Feldman, the world of appearances is no longer mistaken for reality. The Buddha said that emptiness is the abode of the liberated person. Forsaking all notions of duality and separation, compassion becomes the language of emptiness. So you ask, why have I taken us here? And the answer is because I want to charge you with engaging with the inquiry of how to put compassion into action in your life and in the world. Everywhere we turn, everywhere we look, there is a great need for healing being called forth from the earth and all its inhabitants. Then, after consideration, born of a clear mind and an open heart, which is inclined towards compassion, choose and commit to creating for ourselves and others the kind of environment in which there is space and time enough for a spiritual opening, for a healing. These dire times are reflective of a spiritual crisis, and we are the ones blessed with the awareness, the knowledge, the practice, the fortitude, the wisdom, the community, and a heart-mind forged in the perfection of the Dharma and resting tenderly and solidly in grace and the kindness of compassion. There is no particular way for the form this action might take. We are already engaged in a big way by walking this path together. And even in that action, be mindful of your self-care. Write the books and the articles. Tell your mothers or your fathers, your partners, your children, friends and loved ones of your care and appreciation and love. Be kinder. Take the time. Attend the rallies. Engage in the discourses of change. Find your way and remain committed to turning and seeing suffering and the end of suffering. 
this in and of itself may become the greatest act of compassion. May all beings find healing. May all beings find peace. May all beings be held in compassion. Compassion for ourselves is often neglected in spiritual practice. Those of us in service to humanity, people of color, human rights activists and social justice workers, educators, healthcare workers, mental health workers, and if you didn't hear yourself named there, just add it in. The ground for compassion is established first by practicing sensitivity towards ourselves. True compassion arises from a healthy sense of self, from an awareness of who we are that honors our true capacities and fears, our own feelings and integrity, along with others. It is never based on fear or pity, but is a deep response of the heart based on dignity, integrity, and well-being of every single creature. It is a spontaneous response to the suffering and pain we encounter. It is our feeling of mutual resonance and natural connectedness in the face of the universal experience of loss and pain. As our own hearts open, and are healed, it naturally seeks the healing of all it touches. Compassion for ourselves gives rise to the power to transform resentment into forgiveness, hatred into friendliness, and fear into respect for all beings. It allows us to extend warmth, sensitivity, and openness to the sorrows around us in a truthful and genuine way. At times, compassion may give rise to action, and at times it will not. not. It does not arise in order to solve a problem, yet out of compassion flows action whenever it need be taken. True compassion arises from a sense that the heart has the fearless capacity to embrace all things, to touch all things. Trungpa calls this the spiritual warrior's tender heart of sadness. When you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. You find that you are looking into outer space. What are you? Who are you? Where is your heart? If you really look, you won't find anything tangible or solid. If you search for the weakened heart, if you put your hand through your rib cage and feel for it, there is nothing there but tenderness. You feel sore and soft, and if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. 
Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely open, exposed. It is the pure, raw heart. Even if a mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. It is this tender heart of a warrior that has the power to heal the world. The power of the compassionate heart, of genuine compassion, to transform the pain we encounter is extraordinary. And it is this passionate heart that we are being called to cultivate and bring forward to meet the demand of the suffering of our world. It is only this deep, clear, empty heart that has the power and capacity that will meet the cries of the world. You get to define and choose that place, that heart place and space that calls you to make a difference, whether it be your own heart cultivation or your families or your community or your state or country. Where in there is the whisper? This is for you to do. This is where you become engaged. It is not always the loud clamoring of the suffering that demands our attention and our touch. The fearlessness of compassion leads us directly into the conflict and suffering of life. Fearless compassion recognizes the inevitable suffering of life and our need to face the suffering in order to learn. Sometimes only the fire of suffering itself and the consequences of our actions can bring us deeper understanding to feel kindness for all beings and towards liberation. A lot of times people don't like to hear that. They don't like to hear about like going into the fire is the only way to get there. So I thought I'd tell you a little story about the fire I walked through. Uh, so about, I call it my two and a half years of living dangerously. <laughs> Starting at the end of July 2008 at the POC at IMS, which my husband and I were attending, it was the very end of the retreat. We were going up to the front to take a picture of all the beautiful flowers. Um, and he was coming out of retreat. <laughs> This is what he says. He was so pumped to go and get into the picture that he fell down the stairs and tore the ligament of his knee so that his leg didn't work anymore. So that's number one thing that happened. Then in October 2008, so that was July 2008, then in October 2008 he lost his job that he'd had for 19 years with the New York City Department of Juvenile Justice as a trainer at the age of 61. Then in January 2009, my father died. April 2009, I was given my notice that my job would be over in three weeks. We were in the middle of a program. I used to manage the trauma program at Garrison. 
And um, there were only four more months left to this program. And we were working with line staff from domestic violence shelters, um, introducing them and, and uh, uh, providing opportunity for them to learn mindfulness-based practices as a way to intervene in vicarious trauma. And I got irate that I wasn't, I was destroyed that I was going to lose a job but I was irate that they would stop this program four months from the end of conclusion of the program. And most of the people that we were working with were women, people of color who were working in the, you all know what the front lines is like. And so I became motivated to convince them to keep me for another couple of months so that I could finish the program, which they agreed to. And I was holding all the rest of this at the same time. So in June, from April, when they told me I was going to lose it, in June, I lost it. The next year, I spent cobbling together consulting work. Now, remember, my husband's not working, so that we could live. And all of this is happening during the recession, depression. So I couldn't find a job. So I had to create some way for me to bring some income in. Not being able to find a job, I wrestled with the uncertainty and challenges of growing an economically viable private practice. I'm a psychotherapist in my other life, working with regular folk. So I wasn't interested. You know, it would be nice to get paid $350 an hour, <laughs> but that's not where my heart was and wanted to work with folks like me. Um, and because of that, it really put a cap on what I was able to, to bring in, although it's changed um, over the years. But I spent that year trying to hold on to our house. Finally, in the last four months, from July to October, um, the house went up for short sale and sold. So the blessing in that was we didn't have a foreclosure on our mark, but what you can see, what you can hear is basically over the course of two and a half years, everything that defined my identity and that I knew myself to be went away. And the final thing was moving in with my husband, my two cats, with my mom <laughs> in her house. <laughs> um, so that's my two and a half years of living dangerously. The relinquishment of home ownership and the freedom that I experienced behind that, the comfort and security afforded my mom by having us live with her. She's currently 91 and still going strong. Drives herself to church every Sunday and gets her hair done every two weeks on Wednesday morning. <laughs> um, my husband being a great benefactor for me such that I can crisscross across this country numerous times a year and the generosity and goodwill bestowed on me by my private practice clients who are committed to our work together and being engaged with a somewhat unorthodox therapist and my other communities of support and grace is what has me here today. During that time in my life, it was very challenging to practice in the form of sitting. But it was sangha, 
my annual POC retreat, and my unwavering commitment to the cultivation of compassion for myself and my loved ones. And lastly, stepping in to study the Dharma in a more structured way through participating with Larry's C2D (laughs) that held me, humored me, and brought me through what I call today traveling through the eyes of a needle. I'm going to read a poem here by Mark Nepo. And it's a poem that's very dear to me. There may be a word or two in here that doesn't resonate with you, but that's okay. Just let it go. (laughs) Yes, We Can Talk by Mark Nepo. Having loved enough and lost enough, I am no longer searching, just opening. No longer trying to make sense of pain, but trying to be a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub into a pearl. So we can talk a while, but then we must listen the way rocks listen to the sea. And we can churn at all that goes wrong, but then we must lay all distractions down and water every living seed. And yes, on nights like tonight, I too feel alone, but seldom do I face it squarely enough to see that it is a door into the endless breath that has no breather, into the surf that human shells call God. We're almost there. I'm taking us home. (laughs) (laughs) Then there is the power of this fearless compassion, which can be as tough as it is kind. Sometimes compassion for ourselves and others requires us to set clear, great limits and boundaries. We must learn to say no and yet not put another out of our heart. There is no formula for the practice of compassion. It requires that we listen and attend, understand our motivation, and then move from there asking what action can really be the most helpful here. There is a certain flexibility needed to respond to changing circumstances, setting limits when necessary, and being flexible at the same time. Compassion allows life to pass through our hearts with its paradoxes of love, joy, and pain. When we hear the call of the compassionate heart, we give what we can to stop the war, to protect the children, to heal the environment, to transform prejudice and oppression, to care for the poor. And yet, true compassion also loves ourselves, respects our own needs, honors our limits, and our true capacity. 
when genuine compassion and wisdom come together, we honor, love, praise, and include ourselves along with the others. Instead of holding the ideal that we should be able to give endlessly with compassion for all beings except me, we find compassion for all beings, including ourselves. Caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. Audre Lord. The perception of separation between self and others transforms and drops away as we cultivate the habit of self-care as a wise way to spend our effort and as a doorway into connection. It is also an act of generosity to take the steps and measures to ensure that we are well. We are able to come to this recognition through the understanding of this path and the application of clearly seeing and cultivating courage and wisdom of the mind-heart. When genuine compassion arises, it moves through us as grace, bringing together a tenderness and fearlessness that could never come by any other means. Poem by John O'Donohue for Courage. When the light around you lessens and your thoughts darken until your body feels fear turn cold as a stone inside, when you find yourself bereft of any belief in yourself and all you unknowingly learned, leaned on has fallen, when one voice commands your whole heart and it is raven dark, steady yourself and see that it is your own thinking that darkens your world. Search and you will find a diamond thought of light. Know that you are not alone and that this darkness has purpose. Gradually, it will school your eyes to find the one gift your life requires. Hidden within this night corner, invoke the learning of every suffering you have suffered. Close your eyes. Gather all the kindling about your heart to create one spark. That is all you need to nourish the flame. That will cleanse the dark of its weight of festered fear. A new confidence will come alive to urge you towards higher ground where your imagination will learn to engage difficulty as its most rewarding threshold. And just as a brief uh, closure to kind of pull this all together, I just want to say uh, one or two things about forgiveness. 
So a quote from Jack Cornfield: Forgiveness is giving up all hope for a different past. Not forgiving impedes the flowering of compassion in our practice and our lives. Even if we cannot see it in these terms, we can understand that no one but ourselves can make ourselves suffer mentally. And I make the distinction between suffering and pain. So in life, there is pain, both physical and mental, but it's then the stories and the misunderstandings and the unwise interpretations that then have the suffering roll out from that experience of pain. We can then make the decision to not add to the fires of hatred and bitterness when it is a part of our experience. Just by making this decision, we can add ease and progress to the development of our practice. The Buddha said, hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred can only cease by love. Through our practice, we can come to understand what is possible for the human heart. When our hearts and mind are full of anger and hatred towards others, we are actually the ones who are suffering caught in the vice of this mind state. It is not easy to access the place inside which can forgive, which can love. In some ways, to be able to forgive, to let go, calls for a type of dying. It is the willingness and ability to say, I am not that person anymore, and you are not that person anymore, and we are no longer caught in the cycle of aggression and hurt. Forgiveness allows us to recapture some parts of ourselves that were left behind in bondage to a past event. Some part of the identity may also need to die in the letting go so that there can be a reclamation of the energy that has been bound up in the past. In order to be released from deeply held aversion for ourselves and others, we must practice forgiveness. Forgiveness has the power to bring forth forces of purity and love in the heart-mind and affirm the qualities of patience and compassion. When we remain mentally enslaved by our past actions, or the actions of others, we cannot live life fully in the present. Practicing forgiveness creates the space for renewal and a life free from bondage to the past. It is much more difficult to forgive than not to forgive. And forgiveness does not mean condoning a harmful action or denying injustice or suffering. We should never confuse forgiveness with being passive towards violation or abuse. You must be the one to discern with consideration whether the cost is worth the price you are paying by holding on or being right. The sense of psychological and spiritual well-being that comes from practicing forgiveness comes directly 
because this practice takes us directly to our edge. Being on the edge is challenging, wrenching, and transforming. The process of forgiveness demands courage, requires fortitude, and the commitment to our remembering where our deepest happiness lies. I thank you for your listening and let's sit for a few minutes. the healing time. Finally, on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again, where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them one by one close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. May the merits of our practice benefit all beings. May all beings know peace. May all beings be well. May all beings take care of themselves with ease. May all beings come to understand the compassionate heart, which brings the clarity of knowing who we really are. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.